0: Alzheimer's disease has been described as the great unlearning. But what does it reveal about the nature of human identity? What remains when memory unravels? And how might such insights help Alzheimer's sufferers themselves? We'll explore these questions with the psychologist Alan Deinstegg. He's led support groups with early Alzheimer's patients, as well as a writing group he co-designed with the novelist Don DeLillo. Alan Dienstag has observed the early stages of Alzheimer's as a time for giving memories away rather than losing them.
1: In the end, I think it's that they were making a, a statement about who they are, and the moment that they were in was such that it has this kind of resonance that feels familiar to all of us on some deep level which is that we don't have an unlimited amount of time, and we're going to run out of it. And when you watch these people, you see people who are running out of time. So there's almost something heroic, you know, like, I'm going to tell you who I am before it's too late. I'm going to tell you this story about picking lilacs from a tree with my mother. You know, I'm going to... Whatever it is, you know, a simple story like that somehow has this kind of... It's elevated...
0: Krista Tippett and this is on being Alan Dean Stagg is a clinical psychologist in private practice in New York I interviewed him in 2009 I would like to hear just a little bit about the religious, was there a religious or spiritual background uh, to mm-hmm. your life I, I believe, I did I read that your father was a cantor?
1: Yeah, uh, my father uh, was a cantor. He's retired now, um, and I grew up, you know, with a very large uh, suburban uh, synagogue family, and I had a religious education, so I, you know, I'm, that's very much a part of my life. It's absolutely a lens through which I, I see these things. Mm-hmm. And, of course, memory is a big part of my tradition, yeah. um, the Jewish tradition. <laughs> yeah. It's very much... Uh, all around in that respect.
0: Mm. And what interested you about psychology? How did that happen?
1: You know, this is that's one of those questions that I, I wish I had a great uh, answer <laughs> to. <laughs> you know, uh, and it's very hard to say. I mean, I really just gravitated uh, in, in, in that direction. It was the thing that I was most curious about. And
0: how did you then get into working specifically with um, people with Alzheimer's disease?
1: Well, I knew uh, when I got into graduate school that I wanted to work with older adults. I absolutely knew that. And so I I kind of gravitated in that direction. I moved in that direction. And when I got out of school, uh, there weren't kind of working opportunities for me to do that that I was happy with. So I, um, I volunteered to run a caregiver support group for the Alzheimer's Association okay. and uh, that group was my education mm-hmm. I mean I learned more about the illness and the experience of having Alzheimer's disease and the caregiving experience mm-hmm. from that group you know, than any formal education uh, that I had and so once I started doing that that kind of set me off on the track to uh, work with people with Alzheimer's disease and from there I started um, a support group for people in the early stages of the illness themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, that was not going on in in the area where I was working. Um, you know there were many caregiver support groups, but not a lot of groups for people in the early stages of the illness
0: and do you think is was there also a sense that because this was a disease that had an inevitable decline because there was no cure and no and not really even treatment, and no sense of right. how that would come about. That that patients were treated differently because of that.
1: Well, yes. I mean, you know, I, I think doctors are like everyone else, and you know, you, you don't want to be um, associated with a losing cause. Yeah. Right. I mean, it sounds harsh to say that, but I I think that it's just a human quality that we want to turn away from those things. We're a little bit afraid of those things. Uh, You want to place your energies where you know that you can have the kind of maximum impact. Mm -hmm. And so when you know that what you're going to preside over is a a slipping away, Mm -hmm. um, a degeneration, I think for a lot of people, that's a reason to just stay away from it.
0: And I suppose the idea was that to the extent that, that these people with this disease might be cared for at, just at that purely human level, that mm-hmm. would best be done by the people who knew them best rather yeah. than their doctors.
1: I mean, you know, I, I think there's definitely some of that. I think um, I can't tell you how many times I've uh, interviewed people whose internists upon, you know, so someone will start having trouble with their memory. Uh, and the first stop is kind of the, the family doctor. And, you know, when you're talking about this generation, that may be someone who's known them for 20 or 30 years and may even be the same age, right? Mm-hmm. right. Um, or close, you know. Um, I've often heard these stories of, you know, the doctor saying, well, I, I'm forgetting as well. Everybody forgets. And in it, you can hear, you know, or I can hear anyway, kind of reading between the lines that, you know, there's a kind of denial there on the part of the doctor that, that uh, a lack of curiosity at a crucial moment that's being driven by that um, fear, Mm -hmm. you know, and not wanting to look, you know, not wanting to see it. So, I I think um, that is a factor when we talk about Alzheimer's disease. Um, It is difficult to face, and um, I think that leads us to act in ways in particular kinds of ways or not act in particular kinds of ways. And it's part of the challenge of um, of this illness.
0: But so I wonder if you think about then, because you do work with caregivers, but also with mm-hmm. people with Alzheimer's. So you can't cure them. Um, you can't heal them in any mm-hmm. 360 degree way. How do you think right. about your role uh, what is the purpose of your work with them as a psychologist?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, you know, this is um, something that the writing group really changed for me. I mean, I think that my role is to help them remember. Um, to help them experience themselves as uh, remembering people. And now we're talking, I think it's important to specify, you know, we're talking about people in the early stages of the illness now, who, right. who are cognizant of what's happening, um, you know, who are having real deficits, experiencing real deficits, but who can convey their experience and who can talk about it. Um, And in those instances, that's what I'm doing. I'm also encouraging them in whatever way they are comfortable with to not waste time um, Mm. and to take these opportunities that they have to say what they want to say to the people that they want to say those things to. It really slips away quickly and you see it slipping away, you know, um, week after week. Um, And I think part of the value of being diagnosed and going through the trouble to be diagnosed and sort of being identified, which a lot of people resist, by the way. Right, right, because. Yeah, well, because of that sense of hopelessness, Mm -hmm. right, um, is precisely that, you know, um, that you can manage it in some active way. Hmm. And you can take a look at what lies ahead and think about what you want to do.
0: You've written that previously, prior to the writer's group, you realize that if you thought about memory at all in terms of your Alzheimer's patients, you thought about the loss of memory. And yes. uh, the writer Don DeLillo, who sounds like his mother-in-law was suffering from Alzheimer's, yes. which was his exposure yes. to this. And he yes. he opened your, your mind up about that, didn't he, to a different way. Mm-hmm. Tell me about that.
1: Well, I was running this group, this support group, for people in the early stages of Alzheimer's, and I, um, I got a call from uh, someone who ran the local chapter of the Alzheimer's Association and who told me that um, there was someone who wanted to speak with me about a writing group for people uh, with Alzheimer's disease, and um, I immediately thought it was a bad idea, <laughs> okay. uh, I just did not, I didn't see it, I didn't see how it could work, I thought that it was going to be stressful for people, uh, too dependent on a kind of um, facility for writing, mm-hmm. um, and I just didn't think it was a good idea. And. Um, I think I was kind of, uh, I had blinders on. You know, I think I was limited uh, in that respect. And um, when I got on the phone with Don, I asked him what his idea was. And he he said, you know, writing is a form of memory. And um, perhaps it would be helpful for these people to have access to that form of memory as well. And uh, that really struck me because I... I never thought about writing that way. Right. I, never, I never thought about different forms of memory, even.
0: Like, right. I mean, the mysterious thing about writing, too, when I read this story about you, is that you, at all times in our life, sometimes you, you're able to write something down you didn't even know you knew. Right? Yes. yes.
1: <laughs> right, right. But you didn't yeah. know
0: you remembered. You didn't remember in that of mental way until you wrote
1: it. Yeah, you think differently when you write. Yeah. You, you don't think the same way if I ask you to think about something just in your head, it's a different process, and you use different parts of your brain. So it really is different. And so that just got me thinking about, well, you know, if there are different forms of memory, and we're only using one of them in Mm -hmm. in this way of working with these people, maybe that's just too limited, and maybe we ought to really open up our minds a little bit. To, uh, to this and, and what the possibilities are that are inherent in this. Um, and um, in thinking back to that as well, I, I think it's really important for those of us in health-related professions to talk to people who are outside of the, uh, the bubble, as hmm, it were. <laughs> you okay. know what I mean? Um, and uh, it took an artist to point out this truth about what I was doing. And what I could do for these people you know a a writer understood that (laughs) in a way that I was not going to understand certainly not initially
0: something else that intrigued me that you've written about that and what you realized is that um, when you write something down again it's not just a mental activity you actually leave a physical mark on the world you kind of entrust it you give it over beyond yourself
1: yeah Yeah, and you know, I mean, that was one of those things that until I was in the room, I don't know, sometimes, you know, something happens and you realize how right it is, and you you never could have thought of it, but there you are doing it, right? Right. And yeah, I mean, you know, there we were in the room, and they would write, and they would finish writing, and they would read, and then they would, um, I asked them to give me what they wrote every time we met, and I did that because I knew they'd lose it, or I was afraid they'd lose it. Mm-hmm. I thought there was certainly a good chance they'd lose it. Um, so there was a kind of a practical, you know, anxiety that was behind that technique, if you will. Mm-hmm. But once that pattern got established, I saw that there was an enactment of something else going on there that was very profound, um, and mm-hmm. that was that they were turning their memories over oh. to us. And these were people who might come back next week and not remember what they had written, right? Mm, right. So it's a very, very um, therapeutic activity in that respect as well, and it was comforting to them, yes. Um, no one objected, right? You know no one said, "Oh no, I want to hold on to it."
0: Yeah.
1: they They turned it over
0: you, you wrote of your own grandmother. You said, as she neared the end of her life, my grandmother seemed to understand that if you can give something away, you don't lose it.
1: right, right.
0: And that's something that people were able to enact, um, which is actually taking a form of control, right?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's not a form of control that you can take if I sit you down and I say, well, I want to tell you something that I remember. It's, It's different. Right. There's mm. something about the verbal exchange. Mm-hmm. It just goes into the air. You may say to me, Oh, I'm I'm never gonna forget that, you know. <laughs> right. That right. doesn't usually happen. But <laughs> but you know, verbal memory, it's different. It's different. It's kind of it's invisible. Mm-hmm. It's not tangible. And um there's something about writing that, that is enormously um helpful in this context. You know, you see it on the page, you know it's there you can turn it over to someone else for safekeeping, Um, you know, it lasts.
0: I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, exploring the human and spiritual terrain of Alzheimer's disease with psychologist Alan Deenstegg. When you see someone going through this, that um, all that memory holds, I mean, really, this is bigger than memory, isn't it? But so, Mm -hmm. so people lose their ability to present themselves, they lose their credentials, the Mm -hmm. the way we've presented and defined our identity and worth in this culture, like who I am, Mm -hmm. what I do. Absolutely. (laughs) Or even people talking about all the things that get lost, like not being able to drive. I mean, how that affects people's identity.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, you sent along some of the things people had written in your group, and, you know, they were yeah. just very striking. I mean, one woman, one woman describing how she tried to mask this, I suppose, mm-hmm. early stages,
1: mm-hmm. and
0: how, how very uncomfortable and painful it had become to be in the world, I think, as you say. I don't think that's mm-hmm. very... And then her relief at finding this group. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the man named Saul who said, having been a leader most of my life, I now find myself extremely dependent on others. Yeah. Which in this culture especially is a heartbreaking sentence.
1: Yeah. Yeah, he's... He um, he was a leader in the group. Was he? <laughs> he was. Uh-huh. Yeah, he was a leader in the group. He was one of those people who um, he was um, the last one to stop driving. Right. <laughs> you know, Saul had a car, and he you know he would drive to the sessions, um, and um, he continued in that way. He had that spirit absolutely, mm-hmm. um, but he also was very very mindful of um, how dependent he was on his wife. And uh, on other people to uh, continue living his life the way, the way he wanted to live, mm. you know. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, but they were so happy, and they are so happy, to find one another. And again, that's the only way to break through the isolation. Um, you know, that sense of commonality is very, very powerful. I, I can't give it to them, and their family members can't give it to them. It's only in finding other people who, who you recognize, you know, and who recognize you. That's so important because mm-hmm. isolation is um, ultimately the destination that this illness brings them to, right? It's right. more and more and more isolation. So whenever there's, it's possible to be in a group, and not just any group, because there are lots of ways in which people with dementia congregate, but... They're not conscious. You know, you can be still alone in a group. Right, um, right. The thing about the writing group and the thing about the support groups is that they're there and we are talking about why they are there and who they are there, you mm-hmm, know? Mm-hmm. And uh, that's, by definition, what we're doing. We're, we're we're meeting as a kind of a group of people with something in common. Um, they need that. They really need that
0: ask you you know we um we invited listeners a couple of months ago to write to us if they had an experience with this illness Mm -hmm. I don't think we heard from anybody who has Alzheimer's but from people who love someone who has Alzheimer's yeah and this is something I I wondered about also when I was knowing people with Alzheimer's and I want to ask you I think that some people but certainly not all by the later stages believe that the core of this person they love or who is a part of their family, that that what is left is the core of this person. And there are some people who say, you know, this, the gentleness, the kindness, the joy that was always at the heart of my mother is now there. And it's a beautiful thing, even as it's hard. Mm -hmm. But that's not the story everyone tells. And, no. and there, there's also this hard edge to this, the paranoia, the, the violent behavior, the loss of boundaries that, that comes at different mm-hmm. stages in the disease. I, mm-hmm. I just want to ask you, from the experiences you've had, how, how do you think about that? What is left after so much is unlearned?
1: hmm Yeah. It's, it's a really tough one, um, you know, because it's hard to, it is...
0: And you don't um, want to romanticize it either.
1: No, no. And there are people whose experience uh, with their family members in this illness is just uh, full of despair mm-hmm. and pain. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that happens, that happens. And um, I think that the history of the relationship... Is important here. Yeah, um, I wanted to ask you I, about that. I, yeah, I think that um, the the story goes on in some form or another, is what my observation is. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seldom encountered circumstances where there's an absolute discontinuity. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm, like so, mm-hmm. you know, the the gentle person turns into a a violent paranoid person. Um, and I think it's also important to say that that's not a common. Um, outcome for people with Alzheimer's. But I I, I think that, you know, to the extent that you can make some sense of it, um, it's within the context of some relationship that's preceded uh, preceded that stage. Um, But it's hard. It's hard because there are times when you look and you just don't see, you can't find anything, Mm -hmm. you know, you just can't find it. So where is the person? And then there are times when, you know, you or I could go and look and we would see nothing. And the family member is seeing something or the caregiver, the paid caregiver is there and seeing something and relating to a part of this person inside there, you know, mm-hmm. that is um, still alive and still somehow sending out sending out a dispatch that they hear, you right. know, yeah. uh, and it's extraordinary, it's extraordinary when you, when you see that, uh, but a lot gets lost, I've had, I had a woman recently describe it to me as uh, I- invasion of the body snatchers, yeah. she said, you know, it's like, it's, it looks like him, but mm. it's not him, he's not in there, mm-hmm. somebody took him out of there. And uh, that's her experience with her husband now. Mm-hmm. Um, very, very difficult.
0: Are you familiar with Gisela Webb? She's a actually a professor of religious studies who wrote just an essay that was quite beautiful about her mother's struggle with um, Alzheimer's and how I she know. drew on different texts um, from the Tibetan Book of the Dead uh, to Muslim texts and and oh, St. Augustine's Confessions. And um, she called this the great unlearning. But um, mm-hmm. it felt very important for her to observe what was left Um And, you know, it's easy to put our finger as we are on memories go and lots of features of identity go. But she felt, um, I just want to know what you think about this, that Hmm. intuition, that feelings are still there, emotion is still Mm -hmm. there, even when there are no words to put around it, Um, Mm -hmm. that intuition is there. She felt that humor um, Mm -hmm. is something that stayed with her mother. Um, Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. I think a lot of those basic things... um, are still there, and so you know when you talk about feeling. I mean, um, feeling is there, and you know we express feelings uh, non-verbally. Yes. So I, you know, I've I've walked up to people who've just looked at me and started crying on an Alzheimer's unit, and, well, what are they crying about? I I don't know. (laughs) I don't know Mm -hmm. what they're crying about, but I know that they're sad, and I know that they're crying about something. Um, The same thing with laughter, absolutely. Um, It's there. I would go even a little bit farther than that. There are flashes, there are moments that I've had where there's wisdom Mm -hmm. that is apparent, and um, it hits you like like a ton of bricks. And um, this is an element that I think has a kind of spiritual component, in my experience mm-hmm, anyway, mm-hmm. Uh, with people like this. Um, mm-hmm. Can you give me an example? Just... Well, I, I, uh, my favorite is um, I was working with a, a woman who actually first came to see me. She brought her sister to see me. Uh, her name was Anne, and um, she wanted actually her sister to join one of the writing groups, and her sister wasn't right for the writing group, and and so I saw her and they left and about two years later she came back and she had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I started to work with her and she joined one of my support groups and she was in the group for a long time. Um, and then it just became impossible for her to participate. The conversation was moving too fast. She. She just didn't have the language. She couldn't string together more than a a, a sentence or two, and it it just wasn't working, you know. And so she had to leave the group, and her husband, who was just extraordinarily devoted to her, really wanted her to maintain her connection with me. Mm -hmm. It was very helpful that I had known her before, and um, she would bring photo albums in. She, She would do a kind of little... Tchotchka tour of my office. Um, right, right. You know, when it wasn't really possible to talk about things, she would kind of walk around, and we would look at objects. And she was very um, taken by the birds outside the window. I mean, that was the that was the kind of time that we spent together. And then even that became um, difficult. Um, she um, she was one of those people who started to kind of retreat into a almost a mask like blankness it was harder and harder to access her and and so we were really we were reaching the end of that time and I was talking to her husband that telling him that you know I just didn't think that it was you know a really fruitful way for her to spend her time and and so on and so it was around that time and I was going on vacation and um she loved the beach and I love the beach and <laughs> this was something that we used to connect about and um I said to her uh, as I was leaving I said and um I'm going to the beach. I'm I'm going to be away for a while. And she smiled. uh, And there was her face kind of lit up. And I said, "Um, what do you love about the beach? And she kind of drifted away as she did. And she got very quiet. And again, I waited. And I thought, well, you know, she can't really answer that question. And she turned to me and she said, there's some kind of music that lives there. Mm. (laughs) And I thought, Oh God! that's the best <laughs> answer <laughs> That was just a wonderful answer and um not a, a a summer has gone by that I haven't thought of that at some moment at some beach mm. and um so to me that's like a prayer you know mm. uh, where does it come from you know in the in the A.J. Heschel sense of prayer, right? This sense of wonder, the sense of that place between knowing and not knowing and and, um, the mystery of things, you know? Um, So that's in there too. And you never know when it's going to kind of come out.
0: You can listen again and share this conversation with Alan Dean-Stagg through our website, onbeing.org. I'm Krista Tippett. On Being continues in a moment. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today we're exploring some of the human and spiritual terrain of Alzheimer's disease, what it reveals about the nature of memory and identity, and what remains when memory is gone. I came into this conversation with my own formative experiences in this area. While I was studying theology, I spent 18 months doing fieldwork as a chaplain on an Alzheimer's and dementia floor of a home and hospital for the elderly. My guest, Alan Dienstag, is a New York-based psychologist. He was an early practitioner to integrate support groups into his work with Alzheimer's patients. He also created a writing group for early Alzheimer's patients together with a novelist, Don DeLillo. Something you wrote, I think this is you making sense of what you learn. just, you know, continuing what I think you were just saying. Um, you said, someone has said to you, I, I feel like a picture that is fading. And you note that's true for all of us. And you wrote, watching the group members in their struggle to remember, write, and read their work is a moving experience on many levels. One of these is surely our awareness that the picture is fading along with the sparks of recognition This awareness lends a poignancy and triumph to the work with which one can identify. We all know what fading is like and we all know that our fate is not so different from theirs. The triumph is temporary. It is of this moment, but it's the triumph of life over death.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, when when we first listened to the work that people were producing in the writing group, I was really kind of, Astonished by how profound it seemed, and I, I sort of couldn't believe it. Like I thought, well, uh, what is this? I mean, what are they great writers? Are the, are the, were these people have a particular talent for writing? I mean, what, what is actually going on here? You know, and um, in the end, I think um, it's that they, they were making a, a statement about who they are, and the moment that they were in was such that. It has this kind of resonance that feels familiar to all of us on some deep level, Mm -hmm. which is that we don't have an unlimited amount of time. And we're going to run out of it. We're going to run out of it. And when you watch these people, you see people who are running out of time. Mm -hmm. So there's almost something heroic, you know, like, I'm going to tell you who I am before it's too late. Mm -hmm. I'm going to tell you this story about, you know, picking lilacs from a tree with my mother. You know, I'm going to, whatever it is, you know, a simple story like that somehow has this kind of, it's elevated, you know, it's mm-hmm. elevated mm-hmm. by the circumstance. Um, I think Don, in his book. Don um, DeLillo. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. He, he, he writes about the group and they summoned the force of final authority. Mm-hmm. No one knew what they knew here in the last clear minute before it all closed down. Um, he um, he was writing in this book that he wrote called Falling Man about a group, not unlike the group that that we ran, a writing group for people in the early stages of Alzheimer's disease. But I think that that's what gets conveyed through the writing. And um, it's remarkable how it reads Mm -hmm. um, in the rereading, you know, when you encounter it. And I think um, we're not that different from them.
0: Not. There's that one one line from one of one of the people in your writers group. I can rem- remember picking a fig from a tree in Athens. My lover watches me with delight.
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: that's two sentences. It tells a story that paints such a vivid picture.
1: Yes, yes. And you have the page in front of you, right? You see the effort there also in that page. I mean, oh, where the, she's she,
0: crossed it out she's and crossing started over it again, out yes. and, the,
1: and she can't quite get the spelling right, right. and the, the letters are backwards. And when she read that, it was like, you know, you just wanted to stand up and <laughs> you know, applaud, yeah. you know. First of all, because it was so lovely. And, and But, yeah, yeah.
0: Something that really formed me... And it made me think about what a kind of linear uh, verbal idea we have of memory and communication. Um, Mm -hmm. And certainly, I'm completely Mm -hmm. (laughs) word-oriented. And Mm -hmm. there is body memory that I I think we're learning Mm -hmm. more about in the 21st century, even than we knew a couple of years ago, Mm -hmm. how eye contact and touch and just presence and um, Mm -hmm. indulging simple pleasures like... You know, there was one woman who I could wheel her outside to sit in the flowers, mm-hmm. and she would be so sad and withdrawn when I arrived, sitting in that common room. Mm-hmm. And she would come to life, and you know, I could just imagine what stories were behind that. Or, but I mean, I think that was also about body memory. I mean, imagining this woman mm-hmm. who wrote about picking the fig from a tree in Athens—if you could somehow take her to that place in Athens, even after she. Mm-hmm. long after she could write those sentences she would feel that story I'm, I, I'm I think imagining she did.
1: I think she did feel that story when she wrote that and I think she felt that story when she shared it with us mm-hmm. she was delighted <laughs> uh, to share that with us and um, it's still with us mm-hmm. she's gone she's gone she's been gone for, for a while and here we are talking about her lover and that fig tree.
0: And that delight.
1: (laughs) And that delight. And I just, you know, for me, there's a deep sense of satisfaction in that um, and comfort in that.
0: Mm -hmm. And now we're talking about it on the radio. (laughs) And here we are. Yeah,
1: yeah. It's remarkable.
0: I want to ask you this. um, if, If you found out today that you or your spouse were in the early stages of Alzheimer's, what would be your reaction?
1: Hmm. Um, I'd be very sad. Um I'd feel a sense of grief and and mourning uh for what I knew that I was gonna lose. I think that's where I'd be. Mm-hmm. Um at the outset of it:
0: Would it be very different from how you would have reacted if you hadn't done all this work?
1: Yeah, I don't think I'm as scared of it, actually, as I used to be. I'm not scared of it, I don't think. Uh, now, I, I, I think that before I worked as people with Alzheimer's um, and before I was immersed in it in, in this way, I would have been much more frightened. Um,
0: and why are you not as
1: scared? Uh, You know, I don't know. That's a good question.
0: See, I I mean, I haven't done as much as you have, but I felt exactly the same way after I had spent that year and a half with people with Alzheimer's. And you do hear about how this is the disease that people in the United States are more scared of than anything else. This is what no one wants to happen to them. Yeah. But you don't feel that way having done this work.
1: No. No, I find other things much scarier. You know, I, I mean, pain, you know, I mean, we could go down the list, I'm sure yeah. we could. But um, no, I don't. It's tragic. Mm-hmm. So the, the grief it would be hard to take. But um, I'm not afraid. It, it, um, it slips away, you know, it slips away. And I guess the other thing that you learn is that um, for the people who go through it, they're not generally aware of it on this level you know uh-huh. i i had this experience of doing a workshop and um there were people with alzheimer's in the room and there were about 20 people in the room and we were kind of going around in a circle and people in the with early alzheimer's were talking about you know their lives and how they what they do kind of give their lives meaning and you know find stimulating things to do and so on and um this man started talking about um, his experience as somebody with early Alzheimer's, and he was painting a very kind of benign picture of it all. He said, "Well, you know, it's it's difficult not to be able to remember, and you know, and, but you know, I get up and I I can do this and I can do that, and I, you know, and basically he was just saying he's fine, he's okay. And over his shoulder, sitting behind him was his wife, and she was crying. Oh. She was crying. And I knew, you know, just how much he's lost, how much she has lost, right. you know. Um, but there he was, you know. He wasn't uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. He really wasn't, right? And I, so I think we, we project uh, our feelings onto them and we assume that they are suffering some right. terrible thing. But in fact, that's not necessarily the experience of it.
0: I'm Krista Tippett and this is on Being. Today exploring the human and spiritual terrain of Alzheimer's disease with psychologist Alan Stegg. This is kind of a huge philosophical question, but how do you think differently about the distinctions between or overlap between memory, thought, consciousness. I mean, is consciousness the same as memory? Mm-hmm. Um, some people call this a demise of consciousness. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe mm-hmm. maybe in this, I would also ask you how, when we first began to speak, you talked about memory in Jewish tradition and your religious sensibility. Mm-hmm. I mean, how do you understand these things differently? Because of your experience
1: with Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. I guess, you know, um, I I almost hesitate to say this because I I feel like it sounds corny, but I guess I have to start here because that's the first thing that comes to mind. I mean, when you've seen the unraveling of this consciousness that we have, and that is definitely a word that I would use, um, when you've seen the unraveling from beginning to end, Um, you can't help but recognize what a miracle it is, this mind that we have, this conversation that you and I are having, you know, um, know, the fact that I'll leave here and uh, just, you know, kind of put myself out there into the world and think about a hundred other things. Um, <laughs> and so I have come away certainly with a, um, a renewed appreciation of that. And I guess, you know, that does sound a little bit like, you know, the near-death experience and and oh, now I really appreciate life. Here. <laughs> but on the other side of the coin, I realize how ungrateful we are. <laughs> um, <laughs> we don't notice it. Really i mean i, I don 't want to generalize too much, but I, I think yeah, we tend not to notice it unless it doesn 't work yeah. and then you know then we get all you know bent out of shape, oh i can 't remember this or i can 't remember that and I, but from moment to moment it's it 's a miracle hmm. it 's really a miracle that that all of this works and that it works in the way that it does, and that it has the richness that it does that it takes in so much. Um, and that our internal lives and the lives that we can build as a result of what's inside are so rich, you know. Mm. So I absolutely um, have been touched in that way. Um, It's also influenced the way I think about God. Mm. You know, we're taught that um, we're created in the image of God, and I was taught that, and, and I accepted that, and... So what does that mean, you know, uh, when you see things like this, you know? Um, and um, where I've kind of landed with all of that is that um, uh, if if it's true uh, that that's um, that we are created in God's image, then God um, God has Alzheimer's as
0: <laughs> why, well. Why do you say right? that? But,
1: that's part of it. It's not just the, the miraculous stuff. It's, mm-hmm. it's all of it. Mm-hmm. It's not just the awe-inspiring, beautiful things. Um, it's the brokenness. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the cruelty of this. All of it. All of it. In the way I see it, it has to be, it can't just be one or the other. It has to be all of it, if that's true. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, that's okay. That's okay with me, uh, and I, I guess it kind of also has reinforced my own sense that um, what you do with that is, um, uh, and that our task is to just try and repair mm. as much as we can. Mm. And that's certainly part of my tradition, and it's a part of my tradition that speaks to me, you know, uh, so that, you know, the world is broken, and, and people people get broken, too, in the course of their lives. and. Um, That's the way the world is and it's not because somebody made it that way or someone's being punished or anything like that. It's just, it's part of what's been bequeathed to us uh, Hmm. along with everything else, you know. So those are some of the ways in which those ideas intersect, you Hmm. know, with, with Alzheimer's for me.
0: There's all that language in the Hebrew Bible about God remembering, right? God yeah. remembering, because that does that have different connotations for you now? Which also yes. means, which also means that God forgot, doesn't it?
1: Absolutely, <laughs> that's what I mean. I mean, uh-huh. it, you can't remember, mm-hmm. you can't only remember. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you're remembering, then there's there's the absence of remembering also, right? Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, I think there's probably a whole theology embedded in that. I mean, you know, that bad things happen when God forgets us or when we forget God or something. But I, I, I um, it is very striking to me um, how much there is about memory, um, certainly in the in the Old Testament and the Hebrew Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of the pivot point for so many things, you mm-hmm. know, and I think that's makes sense. It's a very fundamental human characteristic.
0: I do remember how striking it was, and I've since read other accounts of this when I was working on the Alzheimer's Floor, how people who could not string a sentence together, I mean, who maybe didn't yeah. even ever talk, the chaplain would come in and they would say the Lord's Prayer, or they, right? <laughs> uh-huh. Or they would sing a hymn. Yeah. Or yeah. I don't know, the uh, 23rd Psalm. And yeah. the words came out perfectly. There yeah. was something so mysterious about that, that these things seemed to be rooted so deep down and they were indestructible. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> when yeah, so, yeah, when yeah. nothing else seemed to be out of bounds. I mean, have you yeah. experienced that? And how do you explain sure. that?
1: Sure. Well, they're well. I mean, you know the the scientific term. Uh, you know, they're, they're well learned, right? You mm-hmm. know, that's how people describe that. It's, it's, you know, that you've learned something so well. You've repeated it so many times. It's almost like muscle memory, right? It, right. it doesn't require this kind of conscious effort to repeat. And so there, there it is. But it's, I, I still think it's mysterious whether you explain it that way or not. Um, there is something that is um, mysterious about that. And, and it highlights the ways in which memory is always... A creative process. Hmm. To me, that's that's mm-hmm. the other thing that I take away from that. So that, that we're always constructing it. You know, the internal experience is is one in which we we kinda dip into the memory bank and you know pull out the memory in its full form, right? Um, right. but the more we learn about this, the more we realize that in fact it's scattered. It it doesn't exist in one place. It gets pulled together. I was working with a woman whose husband was in a nursing home and um there's that period of time when people with Alzheimer's begin to not recognize their family members and it's it's wrenching and it's painful and it's it's awful. Mm-hmm. It's just awful. And um she was in that period of time and uh, so it would happen every so often. And the first time it happened, she, was, she came back to me in, in kind of a panic. And uh, just, you know, she was distraught and said she didn't want to live anymore. And mm-hmm. if he wasn't going to recognize her. And, and um, what started to happen was that she would go and see him. And the first thing she would say was, do you remember who I am? And I was trying to I was trying to convince her and trying to help her to kind of back off of that. And I was suggesting to her that there are other ways that she could see that he recognizes her. And there are, in fact, you know, Mm. even when someone can't answer that question, you can see on their face, you can see in their body language, there are lots of ways that you can tell. But he got to a certain point where he just, he couldn't answer the question. And one day she went in and she asked him, and he looked at her and he said, I don't know who you are. But I love you. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, uh, you know, he thought of the right answer. He did. I mean, he
0: also understood what you needed to he hear. He
1: totally understood. And again, you know, I just, that was very wise. That was mm. very wise. And, and, you know, on another level, I, I thought a lot about it. And I thought, you know, what endures, you know? What endures? Does the name endure? Does the recognition endure? Um, To me, that's a statement about that love is enduring, Mm. actually, that you can hold on to that uh, sometimes even after you've lost uh, all the other things. So that one has stayed with me. I mean, some of these things just feel to me like principles for living a good life, you know? Right? (laughs) Right. It's very clear. I love this year to stay. Not for all oh, year, but ever and a day.
0: Alan Dean Stag is a clinical psychologist in private Ford practice in New York.
1: And the telephone movies that we know may just be passing fancies. And then time may go, but oh my dear
0: in closing, here are some lines from the poet Sean Nevin, who's also led writing groups with Alzheimer's patients and lived through his own grandfather's struggle with this disease. This is an excerpt from his collection of poetry about those experiences, Oblivio Gate. The moon is the rice paper lantern left burning in the garden Long after the last house light is put down Wind sweeps its circles across the empty lawn and back again All night I search you for signs of recognition Solomon, Solomon I float your name out into the darkness A word, a flame, a silver prayer kite rising Rice paper, balsa, twine for the rigging Remember this, remember. You can read the text of Sean Nevin's poem, listen to this episode again, and share it all at onbeing.org. You can also stream it on your phone through our iPhone and Android apps or on our fabulous new tablet app. Being is Trent Gillis, Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Mariah Helgeson, Nikki Oster, Michelle Keeley, and Selena Carlson. Our major funding partners are the Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide at FordFoundation.org, the Fetzer Institute, fostering awareness of the power of love and forgiveness to transform our world, find them at Fetzer.org, Calliopea Foundation, Contributing to organizations that weave reverence, reciprocity, and resilience into the fabric of modern life. And the Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. Our corporate sponsor is Mutual of America. Since 1945, Americans have turned to Mutual of America to help plan for their retirement and meet their long-term financial objectives. Mutual of America is committed to providing quality products and services to help you build build, and preserve assets for a financially secure future.
1: On Being is distributed by American Public Media and is a Krista Tippett Public Production.